Okay, good, good. You guys drew that out just fine. Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to not Hebrews 11, Genesis chapter 4, where we're going to be looking at some background to our message this morning from Hebrews 11 on uh, righteousness attained by faith. And so I want you to look at Genesis just to remind us of uh, the stories of two key individuals that are brought up in the early chapters of Hebrews, um, uh, or the early verses of Hebrews 11. And the first is Abel, who is found in, in Genesis chapter 4. So you can follow along in your Bible, and I'm going to read the account of, of Abel and Cain and what happened there with these two men. Now, the man had relations with his wife, Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I've gotten a man child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother, Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the flocks. But Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. And if you're young and you know what that means, it means he pouted. (laughs) Verse 6, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel, his brother. And it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he says, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground and from your face. I will be hidden and I will be a vagrant and wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken upon him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now look down at Genesis chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 18, where we encounter another key individual who's going to appear in our text this morning. Starting in Genesis 5, 18, we read, Jared lived 162 years and became the father of Enoch. And Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God. And he was not, for the Lord took him. This morning, as we return to Hebrews 11, the great chapter of faith, we're going to continue to just study faith and, and what it looks like and how it is to operate in our lives today by looking at this chapter, which focuses on that subject. So far, we have learned that faith, its definition is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It is when you, you grab onto mentally, so to speak, when you trust in something you don't see, which has been told you in the word of God, and you believe it and you order your life around it. The Christian is one who reads things in God's word and then lives by those things he reads, seeing them with the eye of faith, believing them to be true. 
Secondly, we have seen the purpose of faith in verse 2. For by it, the text says, men of old gained approval. Faith in the promises of God causes one to gain approval with God by faith. He says, for uh, these, these men of old, they had to first believe in something before they received the righteousness that only comes from God. And what was it that they believed in? The Messiah. We'll see that in our text this morning. Third, we learned that it is by faith that we understand that God created the heavens and the earth. He did this, according to Genesis, in six literal days out of nothing. Since creation is a supernatural act and supernatural acts lie outside the realm of what is natural and the laws of physics, which God has created to govern the universe, it is outside of science. It is neither measurable nor repeatable. We can do science on what has been created, but we cannot have scientific investigation of the supernatural act of creation itself. Believing in creation is the foundational act that establishes God as all-powerful creator and sovereign over all that existed exists. Therefore, he has the right to tell us what to do. Having defined faith, having stated the importance of faith, and having laid the foundation of faith, creation, the author of Hebrews now, through the rest of the chapter, begins to illustrate for us how these men of old gained approval before God. It was always and only and is today and will ever be by the same means. Faith. Faith. And so as we come to our text this morning, why don't you follow along? I'm going to read the first seven verses of Hebrews 11 to give us some context. And then we'll look at verses 4 and 5. Notice what the text says. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. For by it, men of old gained approval. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. Through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. That he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Here we see these three individuals in verses 4 through 7. We have Abel. Enoch and Noah, who all attain a righteousness that can only be had by faith. Verse four says, by faith, Abel, asserting that Abel was a real individual. And I just need to give a little defense here because there are many today who are saying that Adam and Eve were not real. Cain and Abel were not real. There was no talking serpent. There was no garden of Eden. All of this is a myth of obscure religious notions that you try to pluck some sort of meaning out of and that it's not true. This, of course, is why the author of Hebrews starts with creation. The first thing he says is, you've got to believe in creation. That God is the creator, and then he spoke everything into existence. And once you've swallowed the big pill of creation, everything else pales in comparison. The Bible teaches that Cain and Abel were real people who lived before the real worldwide flood of Noah's day. Now, I just want you to know this text is just absolutely packed with goodies. I, I think I struggled more trying to package this sermon than I have in years because uh, there is so much here. Uh, William Gouge in his commentary lists 23 points of application from verse 4 alone. Of course, he preached through Hebrews in 30 years. So he had... 
more time than we do. But every one of his points was good. It was very painful to have to just block them and hit delete and make them go away. It's also very almost irresistible to to want to talk about Cain in great detail because he provides the antithesis, um, the negative example of the positive example of Abel. And it's so tempting, though he is just barely mentioned in the text, to run back to Genesis and start teaching on Genesis. And it is very, very tempting to talk about worshiping in spirit and truth from Cain and Abel because they're, they're, it's just, there's so much there. However, since... We are here looking at how men of old gained approval. The emphasis is on the positive aspect of what these men of old did that gained them approval before God. We are going to resist the temptation of just delving into Cain and disappearing into the great chasm and never return. So we're going to focus on faith and we're going to focus on Abel, though we will be touching on Cain to a small degree. So from our text, I want to show you why uh, both Abel and Enoch were examples of faith, which you can follow uh, a faith that attained them a righteousness, which can only be had from a gift from God for those who believe in him. And we'll see how this is as we look at the text. The first point, major point is Abel is our example of righteousness by faith. Uh, How was Abel an example of righteousness, which is by faith? Well, first, Abel's sacrifice was offered up by faith in God's word. Now, when I say that, you might not make the connection, but when you read Genesis, there is no instruction on what God told them about offering sacrifices. However, it is implied that he did. Because if you look at verse four, it says, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. Well, the question is how or why or in what way did Abel know to offer that better sacrifice? The implication is that God gave them instruction. Now, commentators just love to just delve into what Cain was wrong with Cain's sacrifice. And, and several options could be true. One, there could be something wrong with the kind of offering. Obviously, Abel gave a blood sacrifice and Abel, uh, or Cain, uh, let's see, Abel gave a blood sacrifice and Cain gave a just produce sacrifice. And so um, some people have said, well, because that was a blood sacrifice and pictured Christ, that that's the one that pleased God and, and God never told them to give produce. But the text doesn't say that. And in, in the Old Testament system, there were also uh, offerings of, of grain and things like that. And so um, we can't be dogmatic about that. Or you could say that what was wrong with uh, Cain's offering was the quality of it. That it was fine. God maybe had stated, if you give an offering of whatever you have, give the first fruits, the best of what you have. And we see that from Abel, right? He gave of the firstlings of his flock and the fat portions of his, 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 his lambs or whatever. And Cain, though, he just says he just gave some produce. It wasn't even the first of his produce. So there could have been a problem with quality. That the item could have been fine if it was the first of his fruits, but he kind of gave, oh, this is getting moldy, and uh, I don't have a refrigerator, so all offered up to the Lord. Or third, it could be that um, Cain's sacrifice was of the proper kind and the proper quality, but that it was missing the key ingredient of faith. And fourthly, it could be a combination of those things. But the thing that we know for sure, for sure, is that it lacked that third quality. Cain did not offer up his sacrifice in faith. We know that for certain, that that is one of the things that was wrong, maybe the only thing or maybe one of several things that was wrong with his sacrifice. And so we have to ask ourselves, okay, so Abel offered up in faith and Cain did not. 
Well, what was Abel having faith in? And this presupposes that God had given either Adam and Eve, the parents, or he had given Cain and Abel verbal instruction about how to offer sacrifices. We don't know, but it is very reasonable to assume that since Adam and Eve were sinners, they offered sacrifices according to God's instruction. We don't know when Cain was born. We know that Seth was born, which is the brother after Cain, when Adam was, you know, 130. So maybe, you know, Adam and Eve could have been offering sacrifices for some hundred years. We don't know. Or maybe God just spoke to Cain and Abel directly and told them, you know, this is what I want you to do. But whatever they knew, they had to offer sacrifices and they knew that God wanted it. And sure Surely God um, telling them to offer sacrifice would tell them why. Because you are a sinner. I want you to offer a sacrifice in substitution for your sin. And surely he would have told them, now this, this sacrifice is not going to make you perfect. But I want you to look ahead and I want you to consider That promise I made to your parents that the woman's seed would crush the serpent's head, that that redeemer is going to come and that redeemer is going to take care of you and your sin problem. This act then is a picture of what he's going to do for you. So God surely told them something like that. And we can be fairly certain that God explained these things to one degree or another. And as you go through the Old Testament, I think we often give the Old Testament saints less credit than they are due in how much they knew about the Messiah. Paul makes it clear that Abraham saw, or Jesus said, Abraham saw Christ's day and rejoiced in it. And Paul says that Abraham believed the gospel. And he was way back there, before the law, before circumcision. So they had information. They had information. And so what happened is, is God gave them this verbal revelation. Abel seized a hold of it by faith. And of course, that's where faith comes from, doesn't it? You know, a lot of times you're talking to people and, you know, we need to be people of faith. We need to have faith. But a lot of times they don't. It's like what? In a rock? In a totem pole? In my dog? In my checkbook, faith in what? What are we supposed to have faith in? Faith has to have an object and a single object only if it's going to please God. And that is Christ, right? Faith in every, any other thing doesn't work. If you have faith in Buddha or, you know, Mohammed or, you know, Joseph Smith, it is not going to help you one bit. It must be faith in Christ. And so when Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Then we realize that, oh, I see faith isn't just this willy nilly trust in something. It is a specific trust in the word of Christ. In other words, when God gives divine revelation, believers latch on to that truth and those promises and they trust in that truth. That is why faith comes from hearing. First comes the words and then comes the latching on to those words and trusting in those words in faith. So faith must have been the consequence of God already speaking to Cain and Abel or Adam and Eve or whatever. They had some sort of revelation. So God's word, divine revelation is kind of the cleat that faith ties on to it is the anchor point of faith so the presence of abel's faith argues for the presence of previous divine revelation about sacrifice and how to offer it acceptably to god this is why it is so critical that we spend time in the word of god that we read the word of god because it tells us how to live by faith This is what we do because of the word of God. And this is why it's so important to share the word of God with other people if you want them to come to faith. You know, so often, and I think people don't even realize it, when you're talking to somebody about the gospel, a lot of times you never get around to actually telling them anything from the Bible. Yeah, I go to a really cool church and 
We have a really cool small group and we sing praises and you know, we have good fellowship and, and yet you're talking about these things and you know, you kind of never get around to sharing the word of God and the gospel about who they are before a holy God and the judgment to come and their need to repent and believe in Jesus' death, burial and resurrection so that they're, they can have something to latch onto in faith. Because they need that in order to have true saving faith. If you just talk in generalities about the goodness and love of God and and you just talk about fellowshipping and how neat your church is, you're not giving them enough to latch onto in faith. Second, it's important to note that both Cain and Abel came to worship God according to his word to a degree, didn't they? I mean, both offered sacrifices. Both were religious both implicitly believed there was a God. Cain had an intellectual faith, which did not earn him the righteousness of God by faith, but Cain had saving faith, which did make him righteous before God. And Cain is the first religious hypocrite. He is the first false teacher and purveyor of false religion. You say, well, how is that? Because... God had given Cain instruction and Abel instruction and Cain purposely did not submit to God's instruction. Instead, he did it his own way. He made man-made religion. Though he had a pretense and he went through the external motions, yet in his heart, he was trusting in something rather than God's instruction. That is hypocrisy. That is to create false religion. John MacArthur points out, quote, Cain believed in God, else he would not have brought him a sacrifice. He acknowledged the supreme being and even that he owed him some sort of worship. He recognized God, but he did not obey God. He believed in God, but he did not believe God. He thought he could approach God in whatever way he wanted and expected him to be impressed and satisfied. In so doing, Cain became the father of all false religion, end quote. This is why Jude, when he's talking about false teachers in Jude 11, says, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain or followed the way of Cain. And what is the way of Cain? The way of Cain is to hear the truth, reject the truth, modify the truth, and make it your own. False religion. That's false religion. To modify what God has said. False religion has plagued mankind ever since the first false religionist Cain. And as we might think of false religion as something that exists outside of church, surely it does in cults and all sorts of aberrant teachings, it also is found in the church among those who profess to be Bible-believing Christians. There are people who go to churches just like this, who come to church because there's something going on in their life and they want God to fix it. And so they come offering some songs, offering some money maybe, offering some service, offering some attendance, Offering, you know, enduring through a sermon of mine. And in their mind, what they're thinking is, well, this is surely adding up some points with me and God. And as it adds up points and the scales begin to be tipped, surely God will see that I am giving him quite a bit and will respond to me by fixing the problem in my life. A lot of people come to church for that reason. They show up, they tell me that. Yeah, I've got this issue. You know, I've come to church to see if God would, you know, then God's like a vending machine to them. You throw in the three little quarters of attendance and ching, ching, out you get your candy bar. That's how they see it. That's false religion. That's not why we come to church. That's not we worship God. We worship God because he's worthy. And other people come to church thinking that, you know what? I have come to church for a long time. I have read my Bible. I've served. I've given. I've done all these religious deeds. And therefore, surely God is going to accept me and like me because I've done these things. No, he's not. He's only going to accept you on one basis. Faith in Christ. And that's all. Nothing else works. 
I mean, you can really be knowledgeable. Paul said this of the Jews who were the Jewish leaders who were fanatics, you know, at studying the scriptures, which promised the Messiah. He said this in Romans chapter 10, verses two and three, for I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Whenever God says, this is how you attain righteousness, and we modify his way, that is self-works. That is works righteousness. That's us trying to get on God's good side by our own good deeds, or some of Christ and some of ours, or most of ours, a little bit of Christ, or whatever combination you want to have. If we're in the mix, we're not right before God. There is only one way to be right before God, and that is to believe in Christ. A.W. Pink writes, quote, Cain was no infidel, for he owned the existence of God, nor was he irreligious, for he came before him as a worshiper, but he refused to conform to the divine appointment, end quote. We need to beware of behaving like Cain, to come to church, and in the back of our minds, we're trusting in us, our attendance, our reading, our good works, our giving, our whatever sacrifices we might make, thinking that that will make God like us so he will save us. That's false religion. And if we set up a false religion in our heart and then we speak of it to others, we become false teachers, which of course Cain eventually did. He went out and established a very wicked religion. Second reason we see that Abel received righteousness, which is by faith, is because God must first approve of the person before he approves of their religious deeds. Look at verse 4 again. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. Now, just stop there. There's only one way a person can become righteous before a holy God. Only one way. You have this infinitely holy God. How are you going to become righteous before an infinite holy God? Romans chapter 1 verse 17, the verse that brought Martin Luther to the Lord. Speaking of faith says, for in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God or the righteousness which belongs to God is revealed. Revealed to who? Revealed to us. It is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. So it comes from God. This righteousness comes from God on the basis of faith. The gospel is that saving message of Jesus Christ that one must believe in, place their faith in, in order to be saved, to be made righteous before God. When one believes intellectually, which is necessary, and volitionally, so that he trusts in and relies upon the gospel, then he is saved. God declares him to be just because of what Jesus did, and declares him to be righteous because of what Jesus did, and then God imputes to him, as he takes away the person's sin, he gives them back the righteousness of Christ. That's why Paul says in Romans 3.26, God is just... And the justifier of the one who has what? Good works? No. Who has faith in Jesus. Paul arguing this very point in Romans 4, 5 says, But to the one who does not work, he's not trying to earn favor with God, does no works to try and earn favor with God, zero works to earn favor with God, none, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. It's like your whole life, if you're religious or you're an atheist or you're an axe murderer, it doesn't matter, your whole life, man, you're writing checks with an empty count. It's just bouncing, they're bouncing, bouncing, bouncing. There's nothing in your account. No good. There's nothing to draw from that would please God. Nothing. And the moment you place your faith in Christ, God just fills up that account to have infinite resources so that you can draw from it forever to any degree. Because he 
credits to you Christ's infinite righteousness. And that is how you get right before God. That is the only way you get right before God. So the question is, if Abel, if Abel, you know, I mean, you know, way back in Genesis, if Abel was righteous, which the text says, it says he was righteous. Later on, we're going to learn that Noah was righteous too. It says he was righteous. How did that happen? What does that tell us? Well, third, that Abel attained righteousness for God by having faith in a future Redeemer and Messiah. Look at the first four words in verse four again. By faith, Abel offered. Now, what is faith anyways? Remember what we learned? Verse one, faith is the assurance, the confidence of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen out of eyesight. This tells us that when Abel offered up his firstling and its fat portions as an offering to God, he was looking into the future to something unseen, which God then declared to be a righteous act. What was that? The Messiah, the Redeemer. It was promised to his parents that the woman's seed would crush the serpent's head. You know, when when the beginning of the chapter, when I read chapter 4 of Genesis, when Eve gives birth to Cain, remember she says, oh, I've got a man-child with the help of the Lord. I think she's thinking, this is it. I got the Messiah. You know, one sin, first kid, Messiah. She thought, man, this is it, man. We, we blew it. Now we got the Redeemer. It's over, you know, very early on. And so Abel, when he was offering that sacrifice, he wasn't thinking this animal is going to save me. This animal's blood's going to save me. This animal's fat portions are going to make God like me. He could see the animal. He could see the fat portions. But what couldn't he see? What did he lay a hold of by faith? The Messiah. And so when he was offering, just like we learned, Kendall taught us in communion this morning, when you come and you you take the bread and you take the cup, and that means nothing unless you do what? Look back and remember. So as you're doing this ceremony, this ordinance, you look back and, and remember what Christ did. Of course, they were looking ahead to what Christ would would do. We look back to what he is, has done, but the same exact thing. There is no worship which is acceptable without faith. And faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so Abel offered up in faith. And being a man of faith, trusting in the promise of the future of the Messiah, he received righteousness from God, from Christ's future sacrifice, which he laid hold of by faith. And if we do not live and worship by faith, it doesn't please God. And this is so apparent. If you look at back up at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38, it says, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And then if you look down just a little bit past our text, verse six, and without faith, it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a warder of those who seek him. You've got to have faith in everything you do. And if you don't, doesn't count. You have to have faith. So we know as we look at Abel, that Abel had faith. Why? Because Abel was righteous. And the only way you can get righteous is to believe in the Messiah. Now you think, well, so did he know his name was Jesus? No. But he knew that he was coming. It's amazing what they knew. Wait till we, next week. We're going to find out some other things that they knew. We'll have to say that for next week. But even Abraham, remember, looked ahead and he rejoiced to see Christ day. I mean, he didn't know his name was Jesus, but he knew the Messiah was coming. He knew that in his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And he looked forward in faith to that Messiah who would come and bless the whole world, all the nations. 
And then that faith in the promise of the deliverer brought him righteousness. His faith then was credited to him as righteousness. God then gave him righteousness, which was not his own, a foreign righteousness, which he received from the future sacrifice of Christ. And of course, on this side of the cross, when we place our faith in Christ, we receive from what has happened. They looked ahead to what would happen. But either way, it is through faith in Christ. And so if you've come to church to get on God's good side, if you've come to church to try and please God, If you've come thinking that your attendance, your service, your prayers, your singing will somehow make God like you so he'll save you, beware. You are a purveyor of false religion in your heart. And if you speak to others about gaining favor with God in those ways, you become a false teacher. Repentance from sin and faith in Christ and his perfect righteousness is will save you and, and nothing else will. You do that, then you begin to live by faith. But the person must first be approved to God by faith before he can begin to do the religious deeds of faith. All our deeds apart from faith, as in the words of Isaiah, are just filthy rags before God. Fourth, notice that Abel's righteousness before God is affirmed and that his sacrifice was approved by God himself. Look at verse four, where it says, and though, and through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts. Now just stop there and consider the phrase through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. How did he obtain the testimony that he was righteous? Well, he either offered the right item the right quality of item, and surely he did it in faith because he appears here or a combination of all the above. Abel's sacrifice, the text says, was a better sacrifice, and we can speculate about this until we're blue in the face about what was wrong with Cain's, but we just don't know. But we do know about Abel's. Abel offered his in faith. He was trusting in God. And we need to be careful that, um, you know, when, when, when Cain comes and he offers, yes, it wasn't a blood sacrifice. It was the first, you know, it was just some of his produce. It wasn't even the first of his crops. It just says produce. He offered some veggies, I guess. I don't know. Carrots and cabbage. I don't know. It wasn't, it wasn't the best. It doesn't qualify them as good quality. And since he didn't have faith in God... He was rejected. God had no regard for Cain's offering. And this should be a lesson to all of us. Beware that it isn't you. Beware, as Bunyan warns, that you do not enter hell from the porthole of heaven. That you don't enter hell from the front pew of a Bible teaching church. Remember the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not? And remember, they they list those things. Have we not, you know prophesied in your name have we not cast out demons in your name haven't we done many miracles and jesus then looks at them and he declares to them depart from me i never knew you you workers of iniquity why they didn't have faith now that is pretty amazing think that somebody's in the church that they believe in god that they believe in christ and christ as lord and they're serving christ as lord in his church Believing in God and end up in hell? How could that be? Because in their heart, which couldn't be detected from those outside of them, they were thinking they were adding to their salvation that, yes, Christ died for me. Yes, Jesus is Lord. And yes, God exists. But I have to do this. I add a little bit. I contribute to my own salvation. And in doing that, They establish a righteousness of their own and become like Cain and they perish from the very threshold of heaven. Fifth, Abel's righteousness is also affirmed in that Abel still speaks to us of the importance of living by faith in God's word. Look at the end of verse four. It says, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Now, just think about that. That is kind of odd, isn't it? Uh, Speaking dead man. This is actually a present active verb. He continually speaks right now. He's speaking. Abel is speaking right now. Do you hear him? 
how does Abel continue to speak? Well, there's really a couple ways. First, because his story is contained in the word of God, which continues to speak to us, right? Forever, the story of Cain and Abel is going to be inscripturated. They are both talked about in several places in scripture. Cain even more. Cain, by contrast, implying that Abel did what was right and Cain did what was evil and wrong. And so in that way, he speaks to us through the living and enduring word of God. And we know that the word of God testifies that his gifts were good. How, how do we know that? The, how did God testify that Abel's offering was righteous? Because he accepted it. He had regard for Abel's offering. Some commentators, and I read a lot of them, said fire came down from heaven. That, of course, the text doesn't say that. Um, it could be that fire came down from heaven, but it does say that God had regard. But apart from these statements in scripture of both Cain and Abel, Abel, figuratively speaking, speaks to us through his godly example, doesn't he? He offered up his sacrifice of worship, and we are told he laid a hold of something in the future while he was doing that act. And that thing which brings people righteousness is Christ. So he was thinking about the future redeemer as he was offering his sacrifice. That then pleased God because God then saw him laying a hold of the future Messiah, Jesus Christ. And in doing that, he received righteousness from God. It wasn't his own righteousness. It was the righteousness of Christ given to him for that act of faith. The pirates of the Caribbean have it wrong. Dead men do tell tales. And Abel still speaks. And he tells us, you need to worship God in spirit and truth. You need to look ahead in faith. And while you're singing praises, think of Christ. While you're taking communion, think of Christ. While you're giving, think of giving to the Lord and Christ. When you're serving, think of serving Christ. That all these things, you're looking ahead. You're laying hold of faith in Christ. And as soon as your mind quits thinking of Christ, as soon as you quit thinking about what Christ has done and who he is and how worthy he is, and you go through the religious motions you become like Cain and then you're not pleasing to God anymore and then your countenance may fall and you may pout because God doesn't seem to be blessing you and he's not and you don't understand why but God's word tells you to do what is right and then your countenance will be lifted so Abel speaks that way. Hebrews twelve twenty four also says, uh, has a, another little interesting statement about this. We're, we're not going to preach through Hebrews 12, but um, in twelve twenty four it says, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Now, that's interesting uh, because the author of Hebrew just implies here that the blood of Abel is still speaking. And what is it speaking? It's speaking or crying out for vengeance because he was murdered unjustly. He's like the souls under the altar in Revelation 4 that say, how long, O Lord, faithful and true, will you refrain from avenging our blood on those who have killed us? Then they're, they're crying out. Well, remember what happened in Genesis 4. Your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. Crying out for what? For vengeance. For vengeance. And so how is Christ's blood better than Abel's blood? Because Christ's blood cries out salvation for those who believe. Not judgment, not retribution, but salvation for those who believe. Peter puts it beautifully in first Peter chapter one, verses 18 and 19, where he says, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. That's how you are redeemed. You're not in that verse, except as a recipient of what Jesus did. There's no good works in there. It's not your precious blood. It's not your good works. It's not your church attendance. It's not your Bible reading. It's not your sacrificial giving. It's Christ and his blood alone. 
which makes you righteous. The author of Hebrews has already said it in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. According to the law, one may almost say that all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Whose blood are you going to trust in for shedding? Yours? Animals? There is only one blood that will save you from your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ. Sinful human blood won't do it. It must be precious, spotless, the blood of Christ. Recently, there's been all this news coverage on Haiti. And, uh, you know, the, you have to realize the news, you know, I'm not trying to minimize what has happened over there, but the news goes in for the most gruesome things. Um, I remember one time going to, to Israel and the people here were just... You know, I had friends, you know, say, you know, well, did you get any bombs near you? It's like, no, we never saw a bomb and we never saw, you know, these things happen. And this, oh man, we read it on the news all the time. There's all these bombings and shootings and whatever. I said, well, w- when I go over there, do you know what they say in Israel? You live in LA. <laughs> and there's shootings there all the time. Yes, but no windows have gone through my house recently. And some have have seen the multiple thousands who have died and and who are homeless and and some in kind of a self-righteous even condemning and condescending tone have said things like well you know Haiti is a very wicked place voodooism is their main religion they have rejected God. They're into the sex trade and slave trade and robbery and extortion. And the whole country is wicked. And obviously this is a judgment of God. And you know what? It is. It is. But don't think that because God judged them that we're any better. We are the country who uses more resources than any other country in the world. And to whom much is given, much is required. We are the country that's killing over a million babies every year. We are the country that produces the world's pornography. I think 90% of it comes from our country just a few minutes away in the valley. I think every 40 minutes a pornographic video is being made. You remember what we learned from Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5? Now, on the same occasion, there were some present reported to him about the Galileans whose blood had been mixed with their sacrifices. What had happened? And some, some men must have broke the law or violated the law. And then they went to the temple and they offered sacrifices to God. And in the middle of their offering the sacrifices, soldiers came in and cut them down. And they're wondering, how could this happen? They're, look at what they're doing. They're worshiping God. They're doing good things. And surely God would have protected them. And, and why was that? And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And then Jesus said, oh, and let's talk about another thing. Let's talk about the Tower of Siloam. Do you suppose that those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed were worse culprit than all of the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. The question is not, why has this happened to Haiti? The question is, why hasn't it happened to us? Because we deserve it. Because we are sinners. Because we deserve the judgment of God. And the only way to escape, whether you live in Haiti or the United States, is to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, even if judgment comes, and it will come, it is promised you can imagine what, you know, a seven point or eight point earthquake would do to downtown LA, Burbank, Glendale, and Pasadena. It could happen today. And many thousands have their life crushed out of them in a moment and enter into eternity. And the question is, have you repented and believed in Jesus Christ so that when judgment comes, because it is promised and it will come, you will escape. You will live even if you die, as Jesus 
encouraged Martha and Mary in John chapter 11. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Even if you're crushed by a building, you'll keep living in glory with Christ. Well, because the first service went a little long and I wasn't able to get to Enoch, we're going to stop and I'm not going to tell you about Enoch. But I want to. I want to. But let me just close up by thinking about Abel here and what we've learned. Abel, early on in the Bible, has told a a Messiah, Redeemer's coming. God told his parents some hundred years even before he was born. And God tells them how to offer sacrifices and why they're offering sacrifices. And so Abel, when he offers his sacrifice and he kills that lamb, he's not thinking, this lamb's going to save me. Its fat portions are going to save me. It's going to make God like me so he saves me. No. He's already been approved by God because he has placed his faith in the promises of God. And so when he's offering that sacrifice, he looks ahead in faith trusting that one day God will take care of my sins through the Redeemer who will come. It's the same thing we need to do in all of our worship. It's the same thing we need to do in all of our lives. We need to live by faith, faith in Christ, faith in his righteousness, trusting in him and his salvation alone, not our good works. And if you're here this morning and you've haven't done that if you just by listening to the sermon if you've just kind of gotten a wake-up call and just realized man i i have been trusting in my works i have been relying in my own good deeds and my own church attendance and my own morality and although i believe jesus died on the cross and rose again and that he was the son of god and lived a perfect life and all that stuff i believe all that but i can see now that i have been adding a little bit of me to the mix And in so doing, I've corrupted the whole thing so that it will not save me. Then now's your time. You can escape forever. And when the judgment comes, you will pass out of judgment to life. Don't delay because Abel teaches us that righteousness is attained by faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Abel and his example that he sacrificed and gave offerings to you, not trusting in his sacrifice, but looking ahead in faith. He trusted in your word and he trusted in your promises and he trusted in the future redeemer. And because of that, you declared him to be righteous because of that future redeemer who would come. Father, I pray for those who are here this morning who don't know you, those who realize right now they aren't living by faith. They don't trust you. They don't live for you and your glory. They're adding their own good works, their own righteous deeds, and they're trusting in their own morality be a little bit better than the average person, and hopefully that'll get them in favor with you. Help them to see that as false religion, because it is. And may you then, by your grace, open their minds and their hearts to see that they are wretched sinners who have nothing to offer an infinitely holy God, and that they would look back in faith to Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins, was buried and rose again on the third day, conquering death, and that trusting in Christ and his perfect work on the cross and resurrection, you would save them and credit Christ's righteousness to them through faith. Father, for the rest of us, may we realize why we are so privileged. May we praise you because we are so privileged. And may we tell others how they too can receive the very righteousness of God, which is by faith in Christ Jesus, so that you can be honored, so they can be blessed, so we can praise you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.